welcome back and thanks for tuning in to Oil & Gas Onshore, where I am on a relentless pursuit to bring value, unity, and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon. This episode is brought to you by Technip FMC, a company who truly represents the future of energy. Hey everyone, look, not only do you get awesome weekly content by listening, now you've got a chance to win some serious swag brought to you by Technip FMC. Each week, one lucky listener will win a bundle of gear, which includes everything I'm about to list. Seriously, everything. An audio duffel bag, a Yeti tumbler, an executive power bank power charger, a Columbia neck gator, and a set of Ace Pods 2.0, which are the true wireless Bluetooth earbuds. All you got to do is click the link in the show notes and enter your information to win. Simple. Now go get your swag on. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm here with Tim Loser, VP of Sales at OVS Group and fellow podcast host of Chirping Over the Barrel. Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me today here in Zoom land. Hey, Justin, it's great to be here. It's yeah. kind of fun being on a show where somebody's name can be equally mispronounced as mine. I know. You know, it's funny. And again, I thank you for allowing me to come on your show. And we had a little chuckle about that, you know, with my name and, and of course, you know, Jeremy, you know, the old Funkadelic and, and then yep. Mr. Loser here. So, I mean, tell me if you could look back in time, what has been like the most frustrating either like point, or do you have a story of when, you know, a teacher was calling you out and you were just like, you know what, that's it. I'm not standing for this anymore. Well, first, let me just go back. For those who have not actually seen the name in writing, you really should see it spelled out, but it's spelled like loser. Okay. Exactly the <laughs> same put, in English. As yeah. Address the elephant in the room here. Everybody should just understand that. So, you know, <laughs> it, it's funny when you're a little kid, it gets a little sensitive. You get a little sensitive about it because, you know, you and you get to know that, hey, you, you see them calling roll, right? And, and you hear them get to Lopez and you know you're next. Like, okay, <laughs> here we go. And the teacher will pause because they know, uh-oh, I know that's not, that can't be what I'm seeing. <laughs> and then, and they'll stop and they'll go, Tim, or, you know, or they'll just say loser or whatever, or they'll try, <laughs> or they'll, what? or they'll just come up with some crazy mispronunciation because they don't want to say what it looks like. Right. So I have, I have people yeah. go French on it, Lose, you know, all that. So anyway, it was frustrating as a little kid, but you know, you, you just get a sense of humor about it. Yeah. You know, I tell a lot of people, you know, get a sense of humor or learn how to fight. I mean, there's, that's it. That's, and that's really, you grow up with it. And I don't recall ever being really upset about it, you that's know, good. and you know, and I enjoyed you know, I kind of, I have a lot of fun with it. And, you know, my dad was in the air force and his name is always, you know, always right there on top of his chest. Right. Yeah. And he had a little gag where he would meet a, a goatee, right. Yeah. And <laughs> just start laying into them about their name, you know, just start <laughs> making fun of them until they start getting a little bit worked up. And he, and he just points to his chest and says, no, 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 look here. I've earned the right to make fun of you. Right. And so, you know, you, you do that. And I had a gag. I used to do some training courses and stuff. And I would turn around and write my name on the board and say that, well, now would be a great time for an icebreaker, but with a name like mine, you don't need one. <laughs> you know, yeah. so you, you just, you just get into it. But I would tell you, my football coaches loved it. Yeah. You know, anytime, you know, I was the deep snapper, if I snapped it over the punter's head or something like that, oh yeah, out comes all of the comments and, you know, you, that's you heard it. Yeah. So you, you developed some pretty thick skin from an early age, I would say. Yeah. You, you just, again, 
you just have to have a sense of humor about it. And, you know, one of the coolest things ever, my oldest daughter, she went, you know, on her letter jacket, she actually put on the back huge letters, loser across her back on her letter jacket. Nice. You know, so she's wearing it out on campus or at away games or wherever they're going. And yeah, I just imagining what people who absolutely have no idea what her name is, what, why the word loser is written on her back, but it was, yeah. it was a very proud moment for me to say, okay, well she gets it. She's embraced <laughs> it. Yeah. And you know, I think you bring up a good point is it's like, you know, if you can't make fun of yourself or laugh at yourself, then, I mean, you won't really be able to handle much. And I, I've learned to embrace, like, I don't really care what anyone says about me because I am like my own worst critic and I can laugh at myself probably better and more than anybody. So if people want to make fun of me for my name or whatever the case may be, bring it. Like, that's great. If I can be your center of attention for entertainment, I've done, you know, right on. I could care less. I mean, obviously the name is the least, I mean, there's probably some other things that people could start making fun of that would offend me or would right. get me kind of worked <laughs> up, but yeah, the name is the least of them. It's like, okay, you know, I'm born with it. I had fun with it. I grew up with it. No big deal. Right. We can, yeah. we can have some fun. And, you know, that's not what's going to get me to step over the line or get agitated. Right. So Good. maybe there's something else and maybe you'll find it in this, in this interview and we'll, we'll get yeah. after it. <laughs> I'm destined to fire you up, Tim. No, this is good. And so, you know, again, I have, I always like to kick things off with just a question kind of out of the blue and it'll make you think a little bit, but if you could do anything. So today's Thursday, tomorrow's going to be Friday, obviously, assuming you had all the money in the world, you had all the time in the world tomorrow night, what would the ideal Friday night look like to you? And you could teleport to France or to the moon. I mean, if you could do anything on a Friday evening, what would that look like and who would you do it with? Well, I'll tell you what, that is a good question. And I, you know, I generally don't think those big thoughts. So I'm, I'm pausing a second to give me some time. No, this is okay. Take your time. You know, it's going to be an event. I want to okay. go to an event. You know, maybe it's not a concert. I'm not into, you know, sitting at live music necessarily, although I, I enjoy it. You know, going to a big sporting event, something like that. So it's going to be a memory inducing thing. So I don't want to go sit on a beach somewhere, all that. Again, I enjoy all that. But if it's going to be, hey, it's open, whatever, it's going to be an event, you know. So I'd say it's probably a big time sporting event. Okay. That might be happening. I'm an Aggie, so if there's an AM road game or something like that, maybe well, this weekend, I don't know when this airs, but this weekend they're playing Arkansas. That's right. Getting up Friday night for yell practice, going to the game the next day with the people and tailgating. That's really my style. Yeah. You know? Wow. But I, I, you said all the money in the world. I'm thinking, man, I got to go bigger than that. So, yeah, maybe it's a, a big Super Bowl type event, the whole thing. That's yeah. where I'd be. Cool. No, but it sounds like, you're living your best life. Like you just described your ideal, you know, kind of weekend and you're living that scenario. So I think it's amazing. And, and I commend you for that. Cause most people are like, Oh wow. Okay. Well, this is what I would do. And it's like, well, you know, why aren't you doing that now? Now, granted, you know, something could be obnoxious. Like I want to take a spaceship to the moon, have, you know, dinner with Elon Musk in a spacesuit. Then I want to go, you know what I mean? Like then it's like, okay, like, but I appreciate the big thinking, but for you to think, you know, practically, and this is what I would do. And well, wait a minute, let's face it. This. If I had $30 million to spend that willing to just toss, I wouldn't have minded being on that orbit, orbiting the earth in one of those, you know, private spaceships that would oh, have been a lot of fun. And you got to give me a hundred million. So I'll spend 30 million on that. Right. So you know. <laughs> yeah, you got to need a little extra to make, have some extra fun. Do you ever want to go to the, like if they made commercial space flight, like affordable for 
general public, would you I'm do in. it? Yeah, I'm in. There's no question about that. I'd be in. Yeah. I mean, I'd be nervous it. and that's part of the deal. That's why it's great. Yeah. I would be in on that. Really? No doubt. Yeah. Would you do like just a quick trip or would you do like a long time? I wouldn't do a long time. I think, you know, three orbits around the, the earth. That's pretty good. How long would that take three orbits? Oh, shoot. What were they gone? What, 24 hours, maybe? That's it? They weren't gone long. It went pretty fast. I mean, I'd have to go back and look, but I think it was almost same day return. We should probably have Google up asking that question. Right. I know. I don't have my assistant here with me, but <laughs> so wouldn't that be crazy if you did go to the like outer space for you know what you thought was three days and you came back and it was like year 2085? <laughs> I saw that. That's like that movie Interstellar with yeah. Matthew McConaughey, where he goes off and you know goes in some super gravity areas, comes back, and or was it Interstellar? I don't know he comes back and his daughter is dying of old age. That would be so weird. Wouldn't that be insane? And you came back just looking the exact same because you thought you were only gone for like seventy two hours. But you aged two years, and the Earth aged eighty while you were gone. It's like, oh man, that. Uh, It's mind mind boggling. That's one of the things that's probably so hard for a human brain to even wrap your head around is, isn't it? Time is a thing. It takes exactly one second to do this or whatever. Yes. Thinking that, yeah, that second's different when you're in next to the sun versus on the earth. That's weird. It is. I've tried to grasp my peanut brain around it and it's really hard. So is that stuff that interests you? Like, cause obviously you're an engineer by trade, but like, like deep science, like quantum physics and stuff like, does that stuff interest you? Or is it just kind of like, Oh, that's neat. And then you kind of move on. Have you ever like dove deep into that kind of stuff? Periodically I will. And I have little nuggets. I'll run down, you know, a bunch. I'll spend a lot of time and I'll become kind of a, you know, neighborhood expert on it. I won't be an expert yeah. on quantum physics. But I like that I might neighborhood be, expert. <laughs> yeah, I might be the neighborhood expert, you know, that someone could come to and say, well, you know, I don't know anything about quantum physics. So really, well, let me tell you about quanta. You know, I can, you know, spin those things and I get into it. And some of them, I'm truly fascinated to pick the brain of super smart people. Oh, I, I just love just tell me about flying a fighter jet. So I talk to my dad all the time about it. All right, let's, I want to understand. So I'm constantly trying to just pull stories out of him flying fighter jets and whatever else, you know, so you get that. And so you become, and I retain, I am a keeper of stories. I, that's one thing. Someone tells me a great story. I archive it. It's in me. I will retell it. I don't know when it's going to come out, but I will retell it. I will retell it often if required. So I the best party trick ever. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a collector (laughs) of stories which I know we'll get into it, which is what led me to the, the whole podcasting concept. But yeah, so same thing with when you're talking about deep science. Yeah, I'm an engineer, so I'm naturally inquisitive. I think like an engineer. I solve problems like an engineer, but I'm not a typical engineer. I don't have the eye for detail, I think. So I don't think I would be good at Exxon or Chevron as a practicing production or reservoir engineer because i I can't do the details, but because I put problems together that way and I can speak to engineers and I have that inquisitiveness, I think that it enables me in my, my chosen career, which is selling to those engineers. Uh, Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting way that that came together. And I know there's a lot in my history that kind of leads me to that point, but I was naturally drawn to engineering because of the things we've already talked about. Yep. And because of some other skills I developed over time, I'm able to go into kind of a sales or a technical sales world and be yeah. able to speak to engineers. And I think that's, it's an interesting, there's not many people that have that combination 
And I recognize that now. I didn't know it when I started down that path, but you know, I recognize it now. I mean, again, I can relate in a sense. I have a technical background, but I've been in sales now for a while. And having that, being able to bounce back and forth on both sides of the world, I think is extremely important. And it makes you, it gives you a huge advantage and it allows you to adapt to a lot of different scenarios, which I definitely want to talk about. But before we get going, I do need to highlight some fascinating technology provided by our sponsor, Technip FMC. Their new integrated iComplete ecosystem is digitally enabled and delivers efficiency benefits by dramatically reducing components and connections while simultaneously providing real-time data to operators about the WellPad operations. Technip FMC is continuing to push the limits in order to achieve full frack automation. To discover more about all the benefits of iComplete, click the link in the show notes or check them out on LinkedIn. And we're also doing our monthly happy hours for OGGN here in Houston at the Canon. Check them out at OGGN.com for details on all our events. You can sign up for the newsletter and you get all the alerts. And two, we've been pumping out all sorts of podcasts. We have a ton of new podcasts that have come out recently covering everything from new technology, ESG, leadership, you name it. We probably have a podcast for it or it's being coming down the pipeline anytime soon. So again, visit OGGN.com for more details. And for reference, I have a ton more downloads than I do reviews. So please take a few minutes and leave a review, even if it's just a quick sentence, or if you just want to leave however many stars you think it's worth five, preferably, but if not, I appreciate it anyways. So that way it helps me plan my business, but appreciate the support for all listeners out there. All right, Tim, back to you. So let's go back a little bit. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Whoa, 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 whoa. You just did a great live read as a fellow podcaster. (laughs) I just loved seeing that. Well, I'm seeing you, but I loved hearing that because that's not easy just to break in and do a live read like that. That was that was really well done. (laughs) I've I've got about a hundred and what is it now? 145 tries at doing it. So if I can't do it by now, then I'm in a bit of a bind, but I appreciate the compliment. Yeah, it's taken a while. But Every time we do one, we record the ad separate and then we just spice it in. So I just want yeah. everyone to know who listens to this thing. That was not a, hey, recorded it last week and just dropped <laughs> it in. He actually live. read that live while we were sitting there. That was great. Yeah. Oh, I appreciate that, Tim. Let's get back to, because there's. I wanted to talk, you know, your dad, your dad, no, you were, you were my, Air My Force, father's right? a fighter pilot. Your father was a fighter pilot. Okay. So where did you grow up while he was doing this? Well, that's the thing about, you know, Air Force brat. So I was born in Laredo, Texas. Okay. Uh, so my dad was at that time a flight instructor pilot. So he graduated Air Force Academy, mm. went to pilot training in San Antonio, got his first assignment. I don't know. Can we use cuss words on your show? We used to, but now it is okay. not explicit. Okay. So anyway, his first assignment was to be an instructor pilot. And the Air Force, that they refer to that as getting effed. Yes. But he did not like that. Understood. But, yeah, he was a he was an instructor pilot, and then he got his choice of plane after that, so became a fighter. So I was born in Laredo, and then we just moved all over the place. So South Carolina, when my dad got sent over to Southeast Asia, we moved to Arkansas, where both my my mother and father's family are from. And then when he came back, England, Florida, Mississippi, San Antonio, Del Rio, Texas, Illinois, Oklahoma. So yeah, so we moved a lot of places, you know, growing up, which is kind of interesting, which I think in my professional career is that yet another piece is that you have two choices as a child in that atmosphere moving. I mean, the longest we lived anywhere was three years. Okay. And when you move that, especially when you're in, you know, middle school, high school, you have to learn to meet people. You have to learn to be able to have quick conversation with someone and get to know somebody. So in the sales world, Obviously, it's very helpful. Say again. Do you have siblings? I do. We have two siblings. 
Okay. Anyway, I have two brothers. Going. So three boys. I was the oldest. Okay. So you learn to make acquaintances quick. Yep. Their big drawback to that is you don't wind up getting real deep friendships. So it was always, I think a lot of military brats, especially, you know, that moved around a lot. Some didn't, but you develop a lack of permanence. You know that, hey, you know, hey, I'm going to be great friends with this guy for a couple of years and then we'll detach and then maybe we'll see each other later in life. But you kind of have that, you know, lack of permanence. So it is interesting. So I don't have a lot of deep, close friendships, but I can I can get to know somebody very, very quickly. Gotcha. So anyway. Went through all that, graduated high school in Del Rio, Texas, and made a decision to go to Texas A&M. Uh, you know, I had a dream of going to the Air Force Academy as well. I was very, very close. I got appointed or nominated by my congressman to go, which is one of the big steps. That's a big deal. And then I got medically disqualified because I had an ACL problem. And then we went up and got it wavered and you know, so I could have basically, because I had my nomination, I could have showed up on the first day and taken somebody else's slot who didn't show up or who, who quit. Okay. So you didn't just like go to elementary school and then all of a sudden you went to AM. Like there was a lot in between there. Exactly. But what I'm interested in is what did you do for fun? What was like this 16 year old Tim doing back in the day? Tell you what, if there was a sport, I played it. Nice. If someone says, hey, we're going to have a golf tournament, I'm in. We're going to put a little tennis exhibition on. I'll, yeah, I'll play. Okay. That's all it was. So you did like everything or were you like intramural type advocate or were you like seriously competitive or what? Well, at some sports, you know, I like to think I was pretty good at football. Nice. I certainly had the aggressive streak to do it. What position? Long snapper? I played long snapper. Well, first of all, I went to two high schools and moved. Yeah. So first high school, I was a center and long snapper. My second high school, I was a long snapper and tight end. And I also had a defensive position, defensive line. But I rarely played that. But yeah, so that was that was basically it. So long snapper and tight end. Tight end was my primary position, obviously. But baseball, catcher, those were probably the sports that I excelled at the most. And gotcha. honestly, if I had chosen one and really pursued it, baseball probably would have been the one that I could have advanced a little bit further. But because, you know, I was into everything, you know, mm -hmm. I I played golf while I was playing baseball, which when you're learning to play golf or learning to play baseball, those two are not compatible swings. Right. So, I still struggle with that because I grew up playing baseball and my golf swing is not terrible, but it's, you know, old habits die hard, especially when you played it growing up and your muscle memory only remembers about a trillion swings of baseball bats. Yeah. And I think so that it hurt both sports, but anyway, yeah, like I said, I, that was my hobby was any sport. If it was going to be played, I want to awesome. be there and, you know. And you know, then, of course, you know, the typical 16-year-old stuff. We live pretty close to a lake in Del Rio. So, hey, you want to head out to the lake and do stupid things. And yeah, Del Rio, Texas, which is in the news now for all the immigration stuff. But that's where I went to high school. Was it know, a problem back then, too? Or Look, illegal immigration was always there. When you grew up, when I was, again, Del Rio, Texas, we'd see the Border Patrol every day driving up and down the farmlands, you know, looking for footprints to follow illegals. And we saw illegals all the time coming across the border. It's not, it wasn't uncommon. Now there weren't 8,000 people living under a bridge or anything like that back then, but you know, maybe I, I there recall, was, we just didn't know about it because uh, we didn't have social media. <laughs> well, I mean, there's some of that for sure, but I'll tell you a couple anecdotal stories here. But the first one, me and my friends, we were having a, maybe an illegal party <laughs> with a keg Never. of beer out at a park that was right there on the river, on the Rio Grande. 
Okay. And so we had a keg and we're out there. It's probably, you know, 50 of us, you know, a couple of illegals just come wandering into the party. <laughs> they, they just swam the river. They were still wet. No way. I'm not kidding you. So <laughs> their first experience in the U S is a keg party. <laughs> yeah. They just, they just come in, they come in, they're probably 30 years old and a couple of us spoke Spanish and, you know, we gave them some beer and yeah. Said, All right. We'll see you later. They're not there to cause trouble. They're there to get job or do something. You know, they're not there to do anything. So we just gave a beer. They went on their way. And about, wow. I don't know, five minutes later, Border Patrol agent shows up, says, hey, we saw a couple guys cross in this sector. Did you see them? Oh, yeah. They came in. Gave we gave them a beer. beer. <laughs> they went that way. Oh, that's great. And so I don't know. I mean, I don't know if they got those guys or not, but, you know, that that was common. I mean, a fairly common place. I mean, yeah. that only happened to us once, but still, it sticks with me. That's a great, Yeah. <laughs> I was in Del Rio, Texas, and I don't know if you if you're up on the events, but that in 1986 is when we bombed Libya, the United States bombed Libya, and so Del Rio, the Air Force base, is real close to the border. There was a couple of Libyan nationals were caught coming across the border in you know the weeks after the bombing of Libya. Yeah. So that was an interesting time to be on that Air Force base because suddenly there was a big a real fear that the base was a target for terrorism. So it was kind of fun to see. You know, we had to drive through one of those concrete mazes to get on the base, which, you know, my school was off base. We lived on base. We had to drive the maze every day. And they took all the names off everybody's door so nobody could see that, you know, Colonel Loser lived at this address. So, you know, you know, it was an interesting, interesting time to be down there. But two, two, two stories about that. Yeah. So the crossing of the river was always a big deal. It's always been going on. You know, now it's just all over the news and you've got drones flying over a bridge showing, you know, however many thousands of Haitians under a bridge, right? Sheesh. Yeah. They're not messing around, man. It's yeah, it's crazy. It's very complex. I know just through headlines, obviously what's going on. To me though, the headline should be, how did 13,000, 15,000 Haitians get from Haiti, go all the way through Mexico and then suddenly surprise us as they're crossing the river in Del Rio. And why did they all choose Del Rio? It's a long border. Why no that kidding. spot? Yeah. Well, I just saw, I think, didn't Governor Abbott put up like a bunch of cars as a wall recently down yeah, somewhere? I don't know the details, but I saw a ton of DPS, Department of Public Safety, for those who aren't in Texas, trucks just parked right there along the border. So maybe that's what you're talking about. But yeah, yeah. they're right next to each other. Man, Just intense. a bunch of them. So, okay, you grow up, play football, have fun at the lake, you know, drink beer with immigrants, which is totally cool. And then you just all of a sudden decide, okay, petroleum engineering. I mean, were you always a science? Did science and STEM always interest you? Is that why you picked it? And if not, like what made you decide AM and petroleum engineering at that? Yeah. So those are two separate decisions, by the way. I'll get okay. into the different ones, but STEM was always my thing. I love numbers. They just made sense. I couldn't stand writing papers in English or anything like that. So, I mean, I was, I was good at it, made good grades and everything, but I was not a creative. I needed to be in something science. And so I chose engineering early, probably because people said, well, you're good at math. You should be in engineering. I, okay. Course. You know, even before I, back in the day when the first time I heard that, I thought, wait a minute, why do you need math to drive a train? Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so that was my first, kind of the first thought. But anyway, once I start thinking about engineering, I was drawn to aerospace engineering. You know, if I went to the Air Force Academy, that was the major I was going for. And that's actually what I applied for to go to Texas A&M. You know, I put my application at several schools. I had decent scores. So I was, any public school, I was perfectly, I knew I would probably get into. 
Mm. As I remember sitting out in the backyard with my dad talking about it, and we were just discussing things, and he wanted me to not choose a school based on his expectations, but choose on mine. And we had a great conversation about it. And ultimately in that conversation, we said, you know, Texas A&M is where I want to go. And I got accepted in for aerospace. And this is the, you know, height of the, towards the end of the cold war. And there's thousand kids going into aerospace engineering or whatever. Yeah. And I think four of them graduated with jobs, you know, their senior year. It was because the cold war ended and defense spending ended and there was no place to go put them. But anyway, it, it took about, Maybe a semester and a half while at AM, I realized, you know, I really didn't want to design planes or do, you know, I just didn't want to get in, do that kind of work. I just didn't know what. And I started researching what I wanted to change my majors to and saw an article in the school paper, the battalion said petroleum engineering, they're giving out scholarships for, you know, anybody. Cause there was at the time, this again, they're coming out of the 80s slump. There was nobody in the major, you know, 20, 30 students in petroleum engineering. And so they were given out, they were backed by a lot of schools or a lot of big companies and given a lot of money and they were given out a lot of scholarships. And so I said, you know, I looked at the curriculum, said, I'll go get their money. I'll go get a scholarship for, you know, 500 bucks a semester or whatever and decide if I want to stick with it. Got in yeah. there, really liked the people, really loved what I was learning about and decided to stick with it. And it was a great decision, but I'd love to tell you that it was my childhood dream, but it wasn't. <laughs> it was just something I chose. You know, I liked living in Texas. I wanted to be a Texan. So, you know, oil business was a great place to be. And that's really what led me to it. So I'd love to, it's not as fun a story. It was a start out as a money grab, but decided I liked it. Yeah. I mean, again, and it's obviously done, you know, it's done very well for you. And then when you got out of AM, if I remember correctly, looking at your LinkedIn, you did you come out and break out with Slumberjay? Is that right? Yeah. Well, yes. So I went to Slumberjay. I went to Slumberjay in their cementing area pumping services. So at the time that was called Dowell. Oh, yeah. And now I think it's Slumberjay pumping services or some, you know, oil field services, something like that. And actually kind of quickly quit. I went to a small company called OGCI Software and they hired me for technical support. They had just decided that their tech support needed to be engineers. So they hired one who was a good friend of mine. Then they hired me to be a second support guy since he did so well. So we were doing technical support for their software and we wound up getting bought in 96 by Slumberjay. So I was back. Back in blue. I didn't advertise that I was there for three months and, and left to go to OGCI. But yeah, <laughs> you know, it's a better family situation. I was recently married and, you know, being a field guy is not easy on a young marriage. So decided that this software side of the business would be better. And it was, it was a great decision for me. And because I started to recognize where, you know, my talents probably laid. Right. And, and how old were you at the time? So I was 23, 24 in that time frame, And I think because I was an engineer and the company was founded by engineers, they think engineers can do everything, right? <laughs> they so, can't? Well, no. This is where it gets interesting to me. But So they, they take me to the Society of Petroleum Engineers annual conference in New Orleans, I think, that year. And they just prop me up in front of, a, in a booth and start talking to people walking down the aisle, showing them our software, right? And- 
it was an eye-opening experience for them. To me, I was just, okay, I'm just meeting people like I've always done back in the Air Force days. I'm able to get a quick conversation going and I'm doing demos of our software, which I'm also an expert at. And they just sat there watching me and decided that because I could talk to anybody and because I knew the software, you should be in sales, mm-hmm. which is a mistake. You know, that's not the reason to put somebody in sales. Yeah. They, they just equated talk expert. That guy must be in sales. He must be a good sales guy, (laughs) which, you know, I've come to find out that sales is a, it's a profession. It is a practice. It's not just some guy who can speak good does not make him a good sales guy. It's a profession you've got to perfect and all that. So, and I really, just to stick on that real quick. So you've been in basically in sales ever since, right? One form or another, I kind of migrated from sales to maybe a preset, what we call pre-sales now or technical sales okay, or sales engineering to managing sales team to you know, back where I am now, I'm VP of sales now. Okay. So yeah, it's pretty much. So it's interesting and kind of like entrepreneurship, like some people are born to be entrepreneurs and some people just are not. Would you say the same for salesmen that, I mean, can you teach someone to be a good salesman or is a good salesperson kind of got it in their DNA? What's your observations through the years on that? I am not a believer in born to do something. So I believe that, so I've heard people talk about born leaders. Okay. There's some guys that has some intrinsic attributes to be a leader, but they still need to learn to be a leader. They still need to be trained to be a leader. And I think that's one thing the military does do well is they train, they're always training people on leadership and that doesn't stop. So I don't think that there's a born sales guy. I think there's somebody who through their experiences has some innate skills, but they need to be coached up. Yeah. Okay. And I think that your attitude, so you get the right person who is willing to be coached. Yeah and has that the right attitude, I can teach them techniques or I can get them in the right training class to teach them techniques. And then it's about their behavior. So one of the training courses I've taken, Sandler, they talk about BAT, which is behavior, attitude, and training, behavior, attitude, and technique. And the technique I can give them, they have the right attitude. They're willing to be coached. We can get past all those other things. Right. And then you've got to, there's, everybody has, weaknesses and they've got to recognize those and they've got to work on them when they can to improve them. For instance, something that I do naturally, I didn't know it until that day when I'm in that conference was I naturally mirror. So what does that mean? When I'm talking to somebody, I intrinsically match their energy level. So if they go high and they're super energetic and their arms are waving and they're all excited, my voice picks up I, and I match their energy. Okay. And if they come in and they're, you know, very inside themselves and, you know, and, you know, just asking questions in a very calm manner, I tend to come right down back to them. What would you say your natural like tendencies are though? Oh, my natural tendency is to be quiet and reserved. Okay. But I... I can come out and do those other things. People who know me will not believe that because (laughs) at a party, I can start amping up. I can demand the room's attention, but it's not, that's not my natural state. That takes a lot of energy for me. Okay. Interesting. So, and it's not necessarily intentional, but I, I know this about myself that, you know, 
I can be in a room by myself thinking deep thoughts and I am not, I'm not concerned about it. I can go to a movie theater by myself and watch a movie and be all in. Yeah. I don't need anybody there with me. So that's kind of my natural state. Okay. But because of my upbringing, having moved around, I can, I've learned these other skills to be able to kind of, to navigate this world and be effective in those things. So anyway, I feel like that's a really long way of saying that to get back to the original question, there's innate skills, keep them and hone them, but recognize where your weaknesses are. My weaknesses, that outreach to people I don't know, that's very hard for me. So I have to actually get my back up and learn to do that. So when if a sales guy, if you get the right person in, I'll give them the techniques. We can work on a script. Yeah. You, I need you to recognize that I tr- have trouble just cold calling, for instance. Okay. And that's interesting because I think a, a lot of people's tendencies don't like cold calling or they're you know afraid to meet people by themselves for the first time that they've never met. Just, you know, a lot of folks tend to need that, you know, someone with them or some, some support just because, you know, and, and that's one thing growing up. So I grew up as an only child and, you know, that was one thing I had, we went on vacations all the time and, and I constantly had to make friends with people who I had no idea. And I didn't have like my little brother or big sister there to kind of guide me along or, you know, whatever. And so, you know, I, I think again, coming really what I'm, the point I'm making is it's like, I think the upbringing, like you said, and kind of how that's, that forms you kind of lays the foundation for who you are until, and you know, if you can own the certain skills that you were born with or, and then, you know, through the environment that you had to gain and overcome perhaps, I mean, those can take you long ways if understood and aware on how to maximize those skills. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. And so being in sales now, and so you said VP of sales at OVS, tell us a little bit. I mean, what is OVS? It's a software company? Yeah. It's a software services company. A little bit hard to tell, which we do most of, but we deploy workflows for in the production and operations space. So we have a core software application that we can extend with what we call workflows. You can think of those as apps on your phone. And so we integrate with just about everything and we don't want to necessarily come in and replace things. So we go in and we find a problem and we can say, yeah, we can solve that. And this is how we do it. And if there's enough value to that, we'll get in there and solve it. And then our hopes are once we have the application in, we'll just add on the next workflow and the next workflow and the next workflow. So yeah, so our goal is to you know sell a bunch of software, but you know deploying and creating new workflows is done through our services. So okay. we've got worldwide focus. Our founder was originally from Venezuela, so we have an office down there. He's you know American citizen now, but from years ago. So, but we have a lot of Venezuelans that he's brought up through various workshops and moved them either into Mexico or into the U.S. And so we have a bunch there, and then we've got offices in Malaysia, Mexico, Venezuela, Colombia, Houston. Oh, wow. Okay. So you guys have a wide reach then. That's awesome. But we're still a pretty small company. What, you know, maybe 40 employees, okay. but, you know, pretty well spread apart based on, based on where our clients are or where our employees are. So we had, you know, our, our Colombian office is really guys that left Venezuela during all the turmoil over the last 10 years and just relocated to Colombia. And so now we have an office in Colombia. Oh, wow. So you guys obviously survived, you know, COVID. Unfortunately for a lot of people, they didn't. But how are you guys capitalizing and innovating for potentially another, I don't know if it would kind of 
an upturn. But I mean, arguably, you know, coming out of COVID, energy demands increasing, production rates are, you know, down. So I think the energy industry and oil and gas specifically is going to ramp up. How are you guys innovating to prepare for that next wave coming? It's kind of more of the same. We rode the technology wave recently. We made our we started making moves to it, you know, take it obviously take advantage of, you know, being web deployed and mobile and things like that. So we're starting to take advantage of those. And yeah. that's that's helpful. But really it's our focus on where we think we're going to go. So we've really we we're focusing on we've kind of rebranded a part of our, our set of workflows called the production hub. And that's really focused on operational efficiency, really kind of for a North American market. So we think that operators really need to be efficient. And there's a lot of people kind of saying the same thing, increased production and efficiency and so on. So we're less focused on the drilling and completion world. They'll do their thing, but we want to focus on how do we make the onshore operators in the U.S. more efficient. That's what's happening in North America. Conversely, in the rest of the world, you know, they're big wells, big expensive wells. They do a lot of modeling. So we're integrated with their modeling tools. So we deploy a lot of workflows that make use of all of their modeling tools. So we try to automate the modeling. So it's very different. So if you were to go to the Middle East, for instance, for our implementations that are going on there, they look very different than say what we would do for Southwestern energy in the US. Very, very different implementations. Still very production oriented, but very different. So what we're doing now is I think we're trying to gear up for what would be a better North American offering for onshore U.S. operators. And at the same time, we're engaging with partners in North Africa and West Africa to how are we going to address those? So a small company, obviously we can't be everywhere. So we can't be on the streets of Nigeria, for instance, trying to sell to Nigerian oil companies. We're going to employ some strategies to get in front of those guys. Awesome. So what would you say the biggest challenge is, you know, currently in that space, you know, with a lot of the initiatives that you have going on? I mean, is it talent? Is it people? Is it just access to resources? What is it you think? Or just maybe demand? Well, I'll answer it very self-centered on what OVS, that our biggest challenge for us, one is it is resources. And it's for us, we need experts on our own system to be able to deploy our system. So it, of course, yeah. it takes some time to get, we can't just go pick a U of H graduate on computer science and just drop him in and he's useful. It takes a little bit of time to ramp up. So that's, that's one of our challenges. I think the other one, and I, you know, and I don't want to throw our own company under the bus, but we're not a marketing company. We don't spend a lot of money on advertising and things like that. So getting our name out there and doing those things, that's going to be one of our our bigger challenges is actually how do we market that? And that's one of my challenges that I have to go tackle amongst while still trying to sell stuff is how do we how do we go make people under, know who OBS is? Yes. And yeah. I think that, that is it's one of the crazy things is like, yeah, hey, we routinely hear people say, man, I've never heard of you guys, but I didn't know all that you could do all of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and that, I think from my observation over the last few years, since this technology boom in oil and gas and this whole digitalization and automation is that there's so many companies out there that offer tremendous amount of value, but unless they're articulating that value effectively, consistently, and telling the story almost on a daily basis. And I'm not saying this is for you guys. They're saying in general, it's like you almost become irrelevant. And because there's so many people trying to get into that space, it's like, how do you market yourselves? 
to differentiate yourselves from the competitors. And while staying in front of everybody where all the attention is, which right now it's all online and it's going to just continue to stay there. You know, you talked about, you know, going to different, like a conference and this and that. And, and I think those strategies, at least from my standpoint, have the ROI is just not quite there. And so it's like, where do you deploy a lot of that energy into marketing the value that a service company brings in an industry that is somewhat say is shrinking, but I just think maybe the headcount shrinking, not necessarily like the capacity of the industry itself. But I think everyone experiences that and marketing's kind of, you know, I feel like now marketing is turned into like just a bunch of meme generation <laughs> on LinkedIn, which is good because I think there's entertainment value and it's, you know, it's a way to, to get that brand awareness, but to truly articulate value and market that technology is, I don't think anyone's mastered it, but I think it's a challenge for us as an industry. You know, I've seen some technology companies that we have resisted private equity. Okay. It was available to us years ago and we could have taken it. And I think I see other companies that do get some private equity that may or may not be competing with us. And you can really see that they're able to spend a lot of money on the marketing and really put out some high quality marketing and get their name out there. And, you know, we get, there's that. And I think the way marketing has changed, you can do a lot of things very inexpensively now that you simply couldn't do way back when. I mean, just putting, well, LinkedIn memes. Okay. If that's our strategy. Yeah. You can do those at a fairly low cost. Yes. If at all. It does take a lot of energy and a lot of repetition. Mm-hmm. You just have to keep doing it and keep yeah. doing it and keep doing it. So you almost need someone full time and that's where the cost kind of comes in. So yeah, no, that's you're absolutely right. Is it's like I think a lot of companies that are even a handful, like say a team of five or you know, a startup that has just a handful of people. I think most of a lot of their energy and time is either outsourcing marketing to get their name out there, or it's yeah, literally hiring someone. It's like, okay, are we gonna hire you know, a data scientist or someone who can market what we have. And it's like, uh, <laughs> we need to market ourselves. And it's funny because, you know, like for us as a company who I work for, I mean, we didn't have a marketing manager for a long time. Our IT manager was our marketing person. And now, I mean, a lot of our resources are allocated towards our marketing and our technical marketing and it's shifting. And it's, it's kind of, I think people are still trying to kind of test the waters on what works and what doesn't, but because it evolves so fast, yeah, but there's a lot of good companies out there that provide marketing services. And yeah, marketing is interesting. I've seen it change pretty drastically. I mean, it really since COVID, and I think for every industry it has. But anyway, moving on, we're getting close to an hour here and we've just been babbling like nobody's <laughs> business, but that's the what way I go. Two podcasters on a, on a podcast, which leads me to my next question. How in the world did you go from you know, engineering and technical sales all of a sudden? Like, yeah, I'm going to start a podcast. I mean, what the heck? Yeah, you know, it all stems from, I mean, I mentioned it at the very beginning, but I'm a collector of stories. I love hearing other people's stories and reusing them, you know, anecdotally. Yeah. And I was joking around. I've actually got some of these written down, but, you know, I've got one of this idea of a blog back in the day of stupid things that happened to me, an ordinary guy in suburban Houston, you know. (laughs) Okay. Like, you know, hey, my wife found a possum in our oven. That's a great story, worthy of a what? conversation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's great. And t- telling that story is kind of fun. Or there was a cow in our driveway. We're in Pecan Grove, Texas. There was a cow in our driveway. How? I don't know. That's anyway, random. So just telling these kind of funny stories, because when I repeat them to people, they're funny. Yeah. But I had this underlying feeling that 
these stories happen to everybody. We could go sit in Justin's head and go through your memories and you have different stories. You didn't find a possum in the oven, but you know, you had to go cut down a tree with a saw to log a well in Canada, right? <laughs> That's it. Yeah. So you remember so, that. That's good. Yeah. There you go. So anyway, <laughs> I, I collected these stories and I jokingly told Jeremy in a conversation. So Jeremy used to work for me and we routinely network with each other. And I just said, you know, I'm going to write a coffee table book of all of the stupid travel stuff I've done in oil and gas. I've done a ton of demonstrations in my life and there's invariably a problem in all of them. And some of them are just downright hilarious, right? So I said, I'm going to write a coffee table book of all these demos. And Jeremy said, well, you want to do a podcast? And I said, what? And he said, yeah, sure. You know, I've, I've been talking to the guys and they, they want an, another podcast group in the organization. And I said, yeah, what the hell? That'll be fun. And, you know, there's a couple of things that ran through my mind. One, okay, this is going to help me with exposure on LinkedIn or wherever we market it for maybe for what I'm doing in my business. Certainly it was going to help Jeremy. I mean, it's, you know, and what he was going to branch into. So we, we did it and turns out it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's great. I meet other podcasters and we all talk about, you know, hey, it's, it's kind of fun. And, you know, and let's face it, it's a low barrier to entry. It is. It's not hard. I've honed a few other skills. I mean, asking good questions, mm-hmm. it's a lot harder than I thought. You know, you start off with one. I'm like, oh crap, I need to, I need to add that into my list of questions to ask. Right? <laughs> yeah. And I think it's too, I know for, you know, you're, you know, in the sales world, I'm in the sales world. I think it's almost training for sales. And like you said, a lot of it is asking good questions and actively listening to dig deeper and to really, you know, you, you get the best answers if you ask the best questions. But I'm curious, what's the biggest thing you've learned? through podcasting that kind of either surprised you or you you said, you know what? Like, I didn't realize that this was the type of ROI I was going to get. And of course, I'm pleasantly surprised. Does anything come to mind? You know, well, you mentioned ROI and I changed my answer as you said that, but I was at a an event and I mentioned the name of the podcast and to hear a, a recent graduate of, out of Texas A&M, there's a bunch of Aggies at the thing, look at me and say, are you Tilo? And I went, holy crap. Yeah. <laughs> holy so, crap. Yeah. Someone other than my mom listens to this. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's a little bit of that. So that was been, been kind of interesting. It's a great icebreaker. Yes. When you're, you know, you're doing a, a cold call or not really a cold call, but a warm call and you're just talking to someone, it's another, I'm not getting any luck to get him to talk about his business, mm-hmm. but he wants to talk about some guy you had on your podcast. Yeah. That's been, so it's a natural way to kind of warm up a conversation. Yep. And, you know, and then something else, you know, that it's probably more beneficial to Jeremy and what he's doing now than me, but we do have people that want to be on the podcast because they're trying to do some promotions and that kind of naturally leads us into, you know, another set of conversations. How can we help you do something else? Maybe it turns into direct revenue. Maybe it doesn't, but you know, it allows us to kind of help them. You know, and we always took the, you know, we're not, we don't ever let anybody pay to be on. It's got to be, you know, and it's got to be light. So we we don't turn it into an advertisement in any way. So yeah. it's just the way we do it. But yeah, that's that's probably the, as far as ROI, that's really where it is. Uh, biggest great. learning is yeah, again, asking those questions and you know, picking up things from other people. I mean, there's been some great things that I've learned individually, which don't come to mind right now from each of our, our podcasters. 
Yep. And there's been a couple of them where my whole goal in the podcast was to make somebody laugh because I knew they had a big laugh. And I told Jeremy, one lady I used to work with, Laura Dye, said, my goal is just to get her to laugh. So I'm going to keep telling stories until I get that big laugh out of her. And she came, and she came with it at the end. And Jeremy nice. said, okay, yeah. I get it. You got it. That's so cool. And that's the thing too, is it's like, there's no playbook, right? So I love how each podcaster can have, you know, full creative control you know, unless you're sponsored, perhaps you have to stay in, you know, in certain lanes, but at the end of the day, it's a great networking tool. And like you, I love helping folks. So I have some folks on all of a sudden I can connect them with another set of folks that I had on and whether they get to do business or perhaps it's just, you know, opportunity to network amongst other companies who otherwise wouldn't have never met, I think is fantastic. And so for the listeners out there tripping over the barrel with Tim Loser and Jeremy Funk, it's great. Available wherever you get your podcast and video on YouTube now. Ah, you're doing YouTube. Good for you guys. No, I think video content is huge. I mean, YouTube, especially it's, I think it's next to Google. It's the biggest search engine in the world, but no, it's, it's fantastic. And again, so, I mean, I feel like we just scratched the surface, but I do want to respect your time and have one last question for you. Don't be too deep. Let's see what happens. Oh no, it's not going to be that deep. It's yeah. (laughs) I actually, now that you say that I do have a deep one, but I'm not going to go there. So, you know, VP of sales, you're busy, obviously, with that. You've got a couple other things on the go, like you mentioned, evening, weekend stuff, side hustle stuff, which is fantastic. Well, why don't you go ahead and quickly plug it? What do you Yeah, doing? I mean, so, you know, during the COVID downturn, I, you know, I've been dabbling for years and kind of my entrepreneurial part of my brain going Good for you, potentially picking up a franchise. I looked at hair salons, uh, sports clips at one time and yeah, yeah, uh, some other things. And then the timing was finally right. And I just went ahead and did some research with a consultant on some franchises. And I picked up two territories for a martial arts studio. So a nationwide martial arts studio. So I'll be I'm right now in the process of learning how to negotiate leases and do all that. So we'll be opening in the next year, uh, probably you. in the next three or four months, I'll open my first studio. And then the next nice. one will be open maybe a year later. So yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. The numbers worked out and it's not something that's going to require me to be on site 40 hours a week, which is, which is great. And, and I don't do martial arts. So you strike me as a ninja. Okay. Well, (laughs) you haven't seen me in person. There's very few ninja moves coming out of me, right? But no, I mean, it's, it's something that tweaks the other part of my brain. It goes back to sports and youth sports. We go back to our original conversations, you know, and you know, it's a community thing that we're going to be building. So it tweaks another part of me. It kind of answers a couple of whys. And, you know, quite honestly, if it takes off, it's, it's going to be good revenue security for the next energy craziness that happens. You know, next time oil goes negative, I'll be prepared with something else. Right. Right. Hey, I think everyone should have a side hustle. I mean, regardless. And let me, let me tell you, in doing my podcast with Jeremy, I'm amazed to see all the people and all their different things they're doing. Yeah. So isn't that we interviewed cool? Colin Plackey and he's got, you know, a real estate business on the side while he's doing something else. I mean, it's, you know, it's really neat to go learn about those things and how now it's common. I mean, heck DRW drove an Uber. Yeah, I know. It's everyone, everyone has a little something on the side, or at least if they don't, they've been thinking about it heavily. And I think COVID's kind of helped spur that thought and that initiative because People didn't have you know any options, and they probably got bored of staring at their you know significant others or kids in the face. Like, I got to do something else because work's not very busy. Yeah, well, for me, I mean, I'm an empty nester now suddenly, so I've got a couple of extra hours in the evening that I didn't have before. I mean, good for you. Turns out, That's I great. watch Astros games or work on this you know martial arts studio concept. 
Yeah, I'm sure you get a little bit of both, and that's what it's all about. Well, so then the question leads to now, no, so you're obviously busy evenings, weekends, you know, you've got your career, you've got the podcast, but do you have any daily habits or routines that contribute to your success or to kind of help keep you owned in, recharge? Is there anything you do on a daily basis that kind of keeps you in the zone, if you will? I do a couple things. So, under the sharpen the saw, because I work with a bunch of Venezuelans, I'm going back and relearning Spanish. Oh, cool. So, I'm doing a little about a half hour of Spanish lessons in the morning, just kind of, it keeps my brain active a little bit. And ah, mucho is. trabajo. <laughs> Thank you. Gracias, senor. <laughs> my accent's not great, but you know, okay. anyway. Working on it. And then, you know, recently my wife will say, you know, what would be good here? And she's some sort of furniture. So I'm going out and, you know, I've, well, I recently joined a group of people that go build wheelchair ramps for the community. What? Yeah, that's it's called awesome. called four bend ramps. I, well, I shouldn't have started this so late, but yeah. So I've got a few skills in woodworking. I mean, just cutting two by fours and getting them together. And so I, I look at the piece of furniture she's suggesting, and I'm like, you know, I can go build that. So I've done a couple of things here and there. So I'm starting to teach myself that. I mean, it's not fabulous woodworking by any stretch of the imagination, hey, but but that's you know, it, it's you got to start somewhere. Yeah, and it, and it allows me get that little engineering part of my brain together. How am I going to design something and get it put together? So anyway, yeah. I love it. Good for you. You got all sorts of fun stuff going on, man. We should talk about four brand ramps someday on, on there. But we yeah. will. We'll do when we do round two, whether it's in six months or next year at some point, we'll talk about that because I think that would be neat. Because you I could tell you got really excited when you started talking about it. And it so, sounds like something you wish you would have started 10 years ago. So oh, it's great. Okay. Well, let's save that conversation. Maybe we can have a beer one day and because I'd love to hear oh, about it. Because it sounds definitely it sounds exciting. I've never thought about real chair ramps, but now I'm interested. But with that said, Tim, thanks so much. This has been a blast. The hour flew by. But before we log off, I do need to take a moment to tell everyone about some upcoming OGGN events. Hey, it's Mark LaCour, Editor-in-Chief here at OGGN. Sorry for the interruption, folks, but I just want to share a few quick things for November. First, our industrial mixers here in Houston, November 17th. It's usually the last Thursday of each month, but because of the holidays, we're having to move stuff around. We're also launching a new live stream, OGGN Unscripted, on November 16th. We'll be at the Rockwell Automation Fair November 10th to 11th. You can come free. We'll have a live podcast there. We'll be hosting some panels. And then we'll also be at the 23rd World Petroleum Congress 5th through 9th once again with live podcast and hosting a couple of panels. For this information and everything else, just follow us on social. Check us out on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. And if you go to LinkedIn, go ahead and join the OGGN Street Team. I'll see you again next month. Awesome. And again, Tim, thanks for joining me today. If anyone's interested more in hearing about anything we talked about today, because obviously we talked, you know, on quite an array of different topics, but you know, whether it's with your company, the podcast, what's the best way to reach out to you? And I can put the links in the show notes, but anything else you want to throw in there? The best way really for now is going to be the most global is going to just look me up on LinkedIn. I'm the only Tim Loser on LinkedIn that I know of. So I should okay. be easy to find me there, but yeah, just, just, you know, send out a note or follow me or connect yeah. with me and love to chat with you. Awesome. Well, I encourage everyone to take a listen to tripping over the barrel and connect with Tim over LinkedIn. And always remember when the density is up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks everybody. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Oil & Gas Onshore, a production of Oil & Gas Global Network. For more information, visit OGGN.com.